today on 2C Fans. It just sounds like frogs to me. It, sound, it sounds like a bunch of frogs on the shore. Very good. That's that's an analogy that I use to explain to people that it, it, it is just like that. And uh, there are book chapters written that include both fish and frogs, the acoustic behavior of them. So welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I'm Joe Nicholson. And we are very lucky today to have Dr. Jim Lacasio here. Um, he's a moat scientist focused on fisheries, um, and he's got a lot of interesting stuff to share on fish sounds. He sure does, and he's brought a bunch of sounds with him that we will be playing for you. So, um, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your job at Moat? What do you do? Sure. Thanks for having me come in. This is a really nice opportunity. Um, my title is Program Manager of the Fisheries Habitat, Ecology, and Acoustics. And that's a, a big, wide title. But the focus of the work that I do is to understand the role of sound production in fish populations. Sound production is mainly um, used in the context of courtship and reproduction. So by Documenting where and when sound is being produced, we understand the time frame and locations that fish reproduce in. And there's a lot of interesting work going on, important work in identifying spawning aggregation sites and spawning periods. And so we can remotely study this with underwater acoustic recorders that can be deployed for long periods of time. And by that I mean uh, over a year now recording on a period of five, uh, 20 seconds every five minutes, for example, is typically what I use. So, so uh, if, if I may, <laughs> so does this mean that, you know, you, there's a correlation between the two, uh, the fish sounds and the spawning? Very much so. And this is important work so that we understand where or when? Both. Both. Okay. So I got to back up, though, because a lot of our listeners may be like, fish sounds, what are you talking about? Um, they may not know that fish make sounds. Um, what, fish. what fish around here in Florida make sounds? What are some examples? Bubbles. They make bubble sounds. No. No, no I know better because I've talked to Jim, but Jim's going to tell us. Okay. <laughs> so that's a good point, Haley. It is uh, very uncommon to find someone that is aware of this. Lots of fish make sounds and other organisms in coastal Florida. It's a really great place to lower a hydrophone into the water and just sit back and imagine what the source of these bizarre sounds people are hearing for the first time might be. Um, the family Cyanidae are commonly known as the drum, and they are so named because of their ability to produce sound. The swim bladder inside the fish whose primary purpose is to regulate buoyancy, serves a secondary role as an acoustic mechanism. And a sonic muscle that is in the males is associated with the swim bladder, and uh, rapid firing of the sonic muscle against the swim bladder produces the sound. So the swim bladder is the drum. drum. Yeah, the drum. And the muscle is oh. the... The, the stick, the, the drum stick. Yeah. Right, nice. exactly. No, I know that Joe used to be a drummer. Does this, does this, this make the, you happy? I'm, I'm liking these fish a lot more now. <laughs> okay, so we got drums, and we also have, have grunts. Is that another one? that Grunt is, is, in, a, in, is in the same family. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another mechanism of sound production, and people who catch catfish would know this, is uh, 
stridulation, grinding of hard parts against one another. That could be the base of the pectoral spine, it could be the pharyngeal teeth, um, but this is not as um, common. And so it's not something that dominates the acoustic sound field you know, in the recordings that, um, that we have. So. So if I were to call these vocalizations, would I be wrong? I mean, this isn't like making sounds with a vocal cord like a human. What? It's very different, it sounds like. It is. It's a different mechanism, mm -hmm. but we do consider them to be vocalizations. They're yeah. intentionally produced sounds with context. Hmm. Okay. And a lot of a lot of love making sounds, which is <laughs> kind of the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is that. You know, in turbid coastal waters mm -hmm. where light does not uh, penetrate very far, so the uh, visual communication channel is limited, it's not by sound. And so that's one reason uh, why these fishes are able to exploit this communication channel. It goes further. Uh, but for us, we can't really see what's going on because not only is the water turbid, most of the sound production happens at night. Mm. And so visual observations to understand the behavioral context in greater detail are very difficult to get. Like here's the sound you brought us of a black drum. <laughs> wow. That, that, that does sound like a, a, a drumming, drumming noise. Um, That's crazy. It's, it's crazy that these fish make these kind of sounds. Um, some of the other ones that you've brought for us are, for instance, like a spotted sea trout. Now, how would you characterize the sea trout's sound? It just sounds like frogs to me. It, sound, it sounds like a bunch of frogs on the shore. Very good. That's, that's an analogy that I use to explain to people that it, it is just like that. And uh, there are book chapters written that include both fish and frogs, the acoustic behavior of them. Um, and it's in the same context. Frogs are in the air, so we can hear them, and it's very common. But um, it's just not common for people to understand that fish make those sounds because they're under the surface of the water where sounds are trapped by the surface. Is it usually just the male, or can both sexes and some species produce sounds? That's a good question, and it is usually the male. Wow. But there are some examples of females that possess the sonic muscles. And when I was in South America, there's a very large cyanid called the Acupa Rouge, the red Acupa. And it's, um, there was a, a fishing guide who was cleaning some one day, and I walked over and I was looking at them because I had been out recording that afternoon and played him the recordings. He said, that's this fish. He knew it. He, he grew up there. He had local knowledge. But I was noticing that the females, which are very apparent by the enlarged ovaries, also had sonic muscles on their swim bladder. So there are some cases. And that opens up a whole lot of interesting questions about um, the context of sound. Because we always think about it, it's the male courting females. If the female has that ability to produce sound too, then there might be some higher social context to it than what we think of normally. So That's really interesting. Wow. Would be a nice 
future research study for someone, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm laughing inwardly because, you know, that, that guy knew the fish sound because he had local knowledge. Hey, I've lived in Florida my whole life. I couldn't <laughs> tell you one, one fish sound. What do the fish sound like, Haley? <laughs> I'm, I'm derelict in my duties. Come on. <laughs> do you have a favorite um, of your, your recording so far, either just because it sounds cool or because it means something to your, your studies? Um, well, I like them all because they're unique yeah. and they, they are unique, um, because of the, generally the, the morphology of the swim bladder. So the shape, just like you think of a drum kit, each drum produces a different sound. It has a different shape to it. Um, fish swim bladders have a different shape and some of the muscles, um, have differences in them too, which contribute to the uniqueness. So the value is once you meet the challenge of understanding which sound is associated with which species, you can apply that knowledge to all recordings made in the future. So sound truthing a new species is a very big piece of work. Um, but in, in terms of what my favorite is, uh, right now I really like the black grouper because it's in a recent publication. It's only been recently documented uh, by myself and, um, and another group in Puerto Rico. And it has an extremely unusual sound, even for groupers. Well, I've got an example here that you provided us. Can I play for everybody? Sure, please do. That's, it's just kind of like a low rumble. Like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, and if, if you look at that in a spectrogram, which is a picture of sound, uh, it's a triangle wave. It's a speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down repeatedly. Well, here's another one. I could hear that, it's like Ooh, Yeah, Ooh. and they can last for about five seconds, huh. um, which is pretty long. Huh. Most attractive if you're a female grouper. <laughs> really, yeah, okay. <laughs> I love that sound, though. Jim mentioned when we were talking before, it sounds a little bit like a spaceship. I think it does. Well, there you go. Um, so black grouper is a good one because um, we recently learned about your studies of black grouper spawning sites. What was that paper, and what did you guys discover with these sounds? That was uh, the that paper had the the first one of the first descriptions of the black grouper sound, and the purpose of that study was to use acoustic recorders at a site that had been documented as a mutton snapper spawning aggregation site and to see if we could document sound production by mutton snapper which we did not but um, it seems that a lot of these spawning aggregation sites are multiple species spawning aggregation sites so it's not just snapper it's probably grouper too and the grouper diversity at this location was high so we put acoustic recorders out there for a couple of seasons at different locations and we learned that among the the fishes whose sounds were already documented we had red grouper using that site red hind using that site and black grouper using that site and black grouper is not an uncommon species but believe it or not in the US outside of Puerto Rico there are no documented spawning aggregation sites. Certainly they exist, we just don't know where they are, and this provided evidence of the first documented 
spawning aggregation site for the species. So will this allow us in the future to uh, uh, better protect um, those spawning sites? Absolutely. And not only that, but the, the period of time that they should be closed in, um, it helps us to uh, justify closed areas. So when the management councils have to make a decision about, well, what do we protect? This offers um, a lot of information to substantiate that and to also evaluate the efficacy of places that have been closed. Are they serving a purpose? Um, should they be closed? Should they remain closed? So it's, it's pretty useful. It can, one of the great things is that you can deploy recorders, put them on a, a program schedule, and come back months later, and you've got all this data as if you were out there yourself doing it, but you don't have to be. Hey, now where is the spawning site that you found? This is in the Tortuga South Ecological Reserve that was established in 2001. Oh, nice. So this is already protected area. It is. Good. And, yeah. this, and this work uh, represented more good news for that location in terms of it being justified as a uh, ecological reserve and that it is functioning as a reproductive site. You know, um, there's a lot of different views about how we protect and preserve and conserve fisheries. Um, and some of them are pretty common sense. They're just difficult to achieve in society because we have competing interests for things. But you would think that with the, uh, the amount of uh, economic impact that fishing and the fisheries has in the state of Florida, that, that you know, people would start to understand that correlation and come around to, to wanting to protect and, and preserve these, these fish sites. I think you're absolutely right, Joe. And I think that uh, culturally we're changing and we're beginning to adopt that attitude, not only among you know, people who have been conservationists all their life, that just sort of makes sense to them, but to people who, you know, for lack of a better term, have more of an exploitive mind, um, just, you know, that's a resource, let's harvest it. Uh, of course, you know, that is the world we live in, that's what we do. What we want is a, uh, a responsible approach to that, and so, you know, it's win-win for everybody and everything. And the best example that, you know, we can point out today is the recovery of the Goliath grouper. Oh, wow, yeah, they're everywhere. Yep, and that was a moratorium established in the early 90s, and it was a big deal in the mid-90s for dive shops to take people out and show them one Goliath grouper at a site. Now, we are right at the beginning of the Goliath grouper spawning season, and I was out diving this past weekend looking at study sites over on the east coast and there are hundreds of them over there now. You had, I think you gave us some sounds of Goliath grouper, didn't you? Um, I certainly have them and we can find some and oh, play them. But... I've got one. So the Goliath is here in Florida and any, anywhere else like the rest of the Caribbean? or? Um, it's actually tough to find them throughout oh. the Caribbean, although their range extends all the way down to South America, the Atlantic Goliath mm -hmm. grouper. There's also Pacific species. Why is it hard to find them in the so Caribbean? they're not protected. You got it. They're a food fish. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think they're super cool. We've got one at Moat. All right, them. here we go. That shrimp cracking? It is. <laughs> or a variety of invertebrates. Invertebrates. Good ear, Joe. <laughs> so the Goliath grouper sound is, is it about 60 hertz.
to 80 hertz and it's really so it's really a low frequency it's difficult to hear and it doesn't have the the complex structure to it that other grouper sounds have meaning it's just a boom i kind of hear it in the background there oh, there it is, is. Yeah. That's right. boom. Yeah. it was like somebody shut the door boom. there again that's right and boom. So you feel it as much boom. as you hear it when you're underwater. It's just sort of like a concussion through so your body. So they're like boom at you. Like, is it a is it a, a warning thing? Stay away from me, kind of thing. Yeah, it certainly has that context as well. Um, they'll boom at you, or they'll boom um, in response to you for other fishes that are around them. Uh, but they also pattern the sound in the same way other species do where at nighttime there's a lot of sound production and chorusing and so um, it, it has that you know that dual role to it hmm. interesting goliath grouper chorus right you know that, that's the next uh, band coming out of sarasota <laughs> it's a nice concept yeah. um i wanted to ask you uh so you're talking about acoustics uh with these fish as recording them sort of passively in the wild uh, are there things that you can't get um, by just doing that? You've told me before about something called active acoustics. What's that? Right. Uh, so active acoustics is where you are generating the signal and getting the return, and the information is in, in the return, the difference between what you send out and what you get back. And the common, most common example I can think of is a, the fish finder on your boat, or the bottom finder on your boat. Passive acoustics is just simply you're listening. Mm -hmm. You're taking in sounds that are ambient, recorded by whatever the source is around it, be it fish, boats, um, even hydrodynamic noise associated with currents. And so when you guys are out there recording, are you recording the entire spectrum of sound? The recorders are programmable, so you can record um, up to 144 kilohertz, which would be some marine mammals yeah, clicking. That's, uh... um, so yeah, it's broad, but I typically keep the range low. Um, and by low, I mean below 10,000 hertz, because fish sounds are produced as a function of muscle speed, and and that's in the hundreds of hertz. While that's low relative to that broad spectrum we're talking about, it's very fast in the vertebrate world. In fact, fish muscles associated with sound production are among the fastest vertebrate muscles documented. Really? And we humans, we can hear, let me see if I can remember, is it 20 hertz to 20,000 that's right. Ah. ah. That's good. Yeah. So some fish sounds are obviously above uh, our they, hearing range. They don't, no, fish sounds don't go that high. Oh. Uh, they, they are limited by the speed of the muscle, and that's typically in the hundreds of hertz. You may have some harmonics that go up above 1,000 hertz, but the fundamental frequency as a function of muscle speed is limited to just a couple hundred, three, maybe up to 350 hertz. Gotcha. So, like, what's uh, what's next for you in in acoustic research or in in sharing this this stuff with the communities? Well, there's a lot of really interesting possibilities coming up as a result of um, the the foundation of work that has been laid down. It's created a lot of new great research questions, and also the technologies that have enabled the recording on on such high temporal rates. Um, one thing that is really important that's the focus of a question uh, we have now in a current research project is to understand 
how many fish are represented in the acoustic recordings because like we talked about earlier we have a hard time seeing what's going on when the sounds are being made because it's night we don't know how many fish are there so we're combining acoustic methods now the active acoustics which you brought up um, sonars fish finders things that the the fishing industry uses to find big groups of fish combining that with uh, concurrent data on acoustic recording so uh, passive recording so we'll have an acoustic recorder out at a spawning aggregation site and we'll survey that with sonar at the same time and sort of put together more of a quantitative aspect to the passive data so you can connect maybe the number or maybe mass of the fish that are there with the sounds you're hearing right okay wow very cool um so, and also, does your work keep you up all night, like all the time? <laughs> it does, but I don't have a problem staying up all night when we're out there doing this because it's exciting. You never know. You know, you can monitor it live, and uh, and with some of the instrumentation, we'll be using uh, bottom-mounted sonars. Um, some of this stuff we'll be able to monitor live anyway and, and understand, you know, get a sense for what's happening and the field is the place where you become most inspired I think about interpreting your data and getting new ideas um, for just changing your methodology a little bit to just get a little closer to the next step and so uh, it's it's exciting and you're also out there with other fish geeks and uh, everybody's having a good time together and it's it's really one of the most enjoyable things that uh, I had the opportunity to spend my time doing. You seem very excited about your work, and it, it, that's awesome to see. Um, it, we we wish you a lot of luck. Thank with, you. Uh, your future endeavors and and good listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Uh, so this has been two C fans at Moat. Um, we'll see you again in about two weeks. And Joe, don't forget to help our scientists out, like Jim by clicking that donate button on the uh, website. And Haley. See you later from 2C Fans at Moat.